Okay, welcome to another episode of the Young Professionals Energy Podcast. My name is Mark Heineman, and I'm joined today by my, my guest, Kurt Harris. Kurt's a senior mechanical engineer at Flyb Energy. Uh, he's a PhD from Utah State University, and uh, so it sounds like a super smart guy. We'll, we'll put him to the test. So, Kurt, how are you doing today? I'm all right. Appreciate the chance to talk to you. <laughs> Excellent. Kurt, we'd reached out to you to chat about Flyb, and uh, am I saying that correctly? Flyb? That's right, Flyb. Yeah. Okay, and, uh, and and what you guys are doing there and the work that you're doing. But before we get there, I want to learn a little bit more about you, uh, a little bit about your background and what got you interested in the space. Yeah, well, I'm uh, I'm actually from, you're, you're out there in Colorado. I'm from Utah. I'm from Logan, Utah. I grew up right near Utah State University. The Mountain West is a lot of fun. I came from a big family. I was a sixth of eight kids. We're a pretty competitive group, like a lot of, a lot of brothers, all a bunch of smarty farties and uh you know athlete athletes and i was out of the runt of the litter and i really had to work hard to try to beat those guys you know i i, I uh, found myself always always comparing myself to other people and I was, that was so unhealthy <laughs> so bad but you know it actually did kind of drive uh, you know drive me towards more interesting things as i tried to be so I, you know i'm a member of the church of jesus christ latter-day saints i went on a mission to a country called mozambique i was exposed to uh, what I later learned was energy poverty. You know, I didn't realize what yeah. that was at the time and came back from that mission thinking, oh, I need to get into petroleum engineering. I need to get into chemical engineering. I need to get this energy thing out there because you can't have, you know, women's rights and children's education and health care and finance. You can't have anything if you don't have energy. And that, that became apparent to me on my mission as you watch you know, 36 people pile into a small van they use for transportation or three people on a bike transporting a goat or, or you know, things like that are pretty, pretty yeah. rough way to live. So I came back, I, I got, you know, did my mechanical engineering undergrad, got into grad school with an advisor that was working with Idaho National Lab doing nuclear things, transitioned back to a kind of a childhood interest. I was always interested in nuclear. You know, I used to hear you vision, you know, you get, 7% mass to energy conversion with fission and fusion was like 12%. I think these numbers are all wrong, by the way. And antimatter was 100%. <laughs> and thought, oh, well, that's the trajectory for the human race. We're going to be doing antimatter in the future, you know, Star Trek and stuff. And I kind of, kind of abandoned that in fusion and settled on fission. And over the course of time, I had internships with INL and Westinghouse and Sandia National Lab. I spent some time in Eastern Europe and Poland doing some advanced materials research and got exposed surprisingly not through any of those but through youtube <laughs> to a technology uh that was fascinating thorium molten salt reactors and and to be fair my first exposure was a thorium car you know as some fake kind of stupid thing on the internet but as i dove into this thorium thing it, there were publications that had been preserved and put on the internet from oak ridge national laboratory from the 50s and 60s and i dove into those and was very surprised to learn about this technology that guys that came out of the Manhattan Project, you know, Nobel Prize winners advocated for until their deaths uh, as the technology for energy production, not weapons production, not for submarines, for energy production. This thorium molten salt reactor was the way to go. They believed they lost their jobs for it. They got, you know, ridiculed for it. They pushed back against the Atomic Energy Commission for decades, but failed. And in the end, that technology was kind of lost. And, I just thought the whole drama was really interesting, and I was fortunate that uh, I was fortunate to make contact with the lead advocate for this technology today, uh, a man named Kirk Sorensen, who was a NASA engineer when he rediscovered the tech, and 
popularized it with YouTube videos and TED Talks <laughs> and documents, you know, that he digitized and put on the Internet. Really interesting things. So I finished my Ph.D. I, I was fortunate to get hired. I moved out here to Alabama in 2018. Huntsville is Rocket City. It's where they built the rockets that sent men to the moon. It's engineer mecca, man. If you ever want to come out here, it's it's where engineers come to interact with other engineers. It's a lot of fun. I think it's the highest Ph.D. per capita in the country, unless you count Los Alamos or some of these little tiny areas with a national lab. And the yeah. husband, wife, and all the kids all work at the national lab. You know, that doesn't really count. Right. <laughs> so that's kind of my background. Uh, you know, I'm, Live Energy is a really interesting company that was very easy to gravitate towards. It's still small, but it's a lot of fun to work in. Cool. Well, tell us about it. What, what, uh, what's Flive trying to do? Um, what's the mission? Uh, yeah, let's dive in. <laughs> well, the mission, sometimes it feels like just, you know, you're the Kool-Aid man and you're busting through walls and you're trying to change so you know the the tech you know flybe energy is seeking to deploy the lithium fluoride thorium reactor now flybe the name flybe is the nickname of assault uh lithium fluoride beryllium fluoride you know lithium fluorine and beryllium yeah that salt is is like magic stuff it's it's neutronically transparent you can carry actinides like thorium and uranium and plutonium in it quite well if you fission those actinides, you'll get fission product retention in the salts. You, you know, it's very safe. You don't have you no know, Chernobyl gaseous dispersion. You know, you fly a plane into this kind of a reactor and the salt spills on the floor in liquid form and then it'll solidify. But no, no gaseous dispersion happens. It's a low pressure system. So we're trying to resurrect this technology that was, you know, just the right way to go and do that in an environment that's kind of Kind of tricky. So, you know, you got to be Kool-Aid, man. you got to bust through the walls. It's a little bit political. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's hard, but that's how so you guys bring about the second nuclear era, you know. Nice. Are, are you focusing predominantly then on creating just kind of a new reactor with this salt uh, or kind of a whole new reactor system? That's what's funny. It's an old reactor. You know, we talk about sure. advanced nuclear reactors today. So, I mean, today's industry is the light water reactor. It's a, it was invented for, in fact, it was invented by the guy that, that invented the molten salt reactor too, but he invented it for Hyman Rickover for the, for the, for the submarines. And he didn't believe they should ever be larger than about 60 megawatt thermal. And today's reactors are, you know, 3,000. You know, they're huge. They're yeah. huge. He didn't think they were safe. He thought you'd have a loss of coolant accident, a hydrogen explosion. You'd have waste accumulation that would be really bad and unsustainable to manage or scale up. Uh, you know, he, he predicted everything, <laughs> you know, he knew because he invented it and he thought the molten salt reactor, he called, they called them chemical engineering devices, a liquid fueled reactor. You could chemically process and clean those salts. You wouldn't have a waste issue. You could keep the long lived isotopes away from the short lived isotopes. You could keep, uh, the, the fission products trapped in the case of a meltdown. There's no meltdown, but, you know, fuel's already melted. So it's, you know, it's totally yeah. safe when it goes to higher temperature. And when it cools up. Uh, it solidifies and then it's just yeah like, yeah and yeah. it's just and it's actually safer as a liquid than it is besides the temperature than it is as a solid because you'll get some you know some dissociating the you know fluorine will come out but you know it's a it's a good technology it's an old technology the first reactor you know that so they when Alvin Weinberg this inventor when he ran Oak Ridge he was the director for about 25 years in the 50s and 60s and early 70s and it was his number one priority. They built 
the first molten salt reactor, the aircraft reactor experiment in 1954, ran great, very high temperatures, demonstrated the off-gas management and dynamic stability with load follow on its own. I mean, the, the air conditioning in the room would actually allow it to heat up and cool down. It didn't like to change. You know, if you try to heat it up, it'll cool itself back down. If you try to cool it down too much, it'll heat itself back up. Very interesting system. That you don't, you know, you don't see that behavior with today's reactors. And that was, sorry, I might have missed that. They, they trialed that on an aircraft? No, no, this was <laughs> aircraft. So the, the Air Force wanted submarines in the sky. They were jealous of the Navy. You know, this is before yeah. they had ICBMs and things. So like the only time ever, right? But, yeah, there was an aircraft <laughs> nuclear propulsion program. And there was, you know, all the national labs, the new national labs that came out of the Manhattan right. Project. They were all involved, but Oak Ridge got some funding from that program. And Alvin Weinberg even said, you know, I kind of think nuclear reactors in the sky is stupid because if the plane blows up, you get all these radio nuclides to go everywhere. You know, like that's a dumb idea. But I'll take the funding to fund my molten salt reactor, <laughs> which is actually a good idea for energy production. So he did that. Yeah. They investigated a lot of salts. That's when they really discovered FLIVE and, uh, and other salts that are interesting as well. And then in the 60s, from 1965 to 1969, they ran the molten salt reactor experiment and demonstrated even more. Now, this was a FLIVE-fueled reactor. And they actually ran it on plutonium for a while, on uranium-233 for a while, on... Uh, I, I guess enriched uranium is not, not today's low enriched uranium, but more like HALU or HEU. So very. And that's the, that's the technology. percent of U-235 versus U-238. That's actually. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, so yeah. You know, naturally uranium, unfortunately, you have to enrich. It's kind of a, you mine it, then you have to enrich it and you throw away most of the uranium you mined as depleted uranium. Yeah. And, and then you. Oh, it's just a, it's the U-238 that doesn't fission as easily. And so when you enrich it, you're just increasing the percentage of the U-235 that does fission more easily. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Now, the molten salt, the thorium molten salt reactor doesn't have that issue. You don't have to mine uranium and enrich uranium at all. In fact, there's no right. mining even of thorium. Thorium's a waste product in other mining processes. So it's much more... Yeah, you can find in the t tailings of any mining process, right? Correct. Yeah, so, and there's a much higher energy return on energy invested. It just takes less energy and material to deliver the energy that you're making. So it's, you know, I, I mentioned before that 7% fission, mass to energy, 12% fusion. You know, that's what I was getting at was this energy return on energy invested. And as far as I know, the lithium version of the thorium molten salt reactor, the lithium fluoride thorium reactor, has the highest energy return on energy invested of any technology known to man, as far, as far as I know. By taking out the mining, by taking out the enrichment, very energy-intensive processes on the front end of the fuel cycle. Sure. And then by having very low-cost, small, on-site chemical processing, the waste management on the back end is very low energy, again, very easy to do compared to off-site reprocessing of solid fuels, which is something people talk about but don't really do. Even yeah. if they do it, they do it in France. They might do it once, but it's just so difficult and expensive. I mean, these are very sprawling, massive facilities that are not easy to do in, well, in the United States, and we don't do it at all. Okay, so Kurt, help me out with the history a little bit if you're familiar with it. Why why did pressurized water reactors then become popular instead of um, these fluoride, lithium, beryllium, molten salt reactors? You know, I have to go to hand it to Hyman Rico. He was a bit of a an obstinate guy. He was a, he was a, he was a difficult personality, but you know he was there in the Navy. You know, I think he was in his 40s. He goes to Oak Ridge's uh, nuclear school. I forget what it's called. And Alvin Weinberg, this guy that wanted to do the molten salt reactor was teaching in that school and 
had met Hyman and Admiral Rickover, not Admiral at the time, but, you know, and they started discussing nuclear for uh, the Navy. Yeah. And, and uh, Al, you know, Dr. Weinberg and others invented this pressurized light water reactor for submarines, and, and Admiral Rickover ran with that very well. You know, I you know, got friendly with Congress, basically, and, and yeah. even enemies within the Navy and basically created his own nuclear Navy within the Navy and you know, popularized that, you know, got so far on that technology that by the time we were looking to do energy on land for, you know, just regular, just for the grid, Congress sure. looked at, you know, the, the pressurized water reactor and said, well, let's beach that. Let's just put it here at shipping yeah. They went and built a pressurized water reactor. Westinghouse went and did that reactor and you know, operated pretty well. And ironically, at the very end of its life, the very last core in the shipping port reactor was a, uh, a thorium core, and they demonstrated thermal spectrum breeding, you know, which means you can have a small inventory of fissile and still generate more fissile than you put into it versus the sodium fast reactor, or the fast breeder reactor that had to have a lot of fissile in its core and could probably, you know, and could generate more fissile than it created. So this thermal breeder was demonstrated in shipping port. Now, then Weinberg mixing that with the molten salt reactor and thermal spectrum breeder really came up with that, that best technology. And that's what he pursued in the following decades. But that technology, unlike the pressurized water reactor, it didn't operate on this uranium plutonium fuel cycle. And during the Cold War, the Atomic Energy Commission wanted plutonium. They wanted reactors that produced plutonium. So Fermi-1 was a plutonium, you know, uranium-plutonium reactor, the first commercial reactor, a shipping port, all these light water reactors all operate on this uranium. So the whole industry just became uranium-plutonium reactors, except for Dr. Weinberg and his team at Oak Ridge National Lab that were pursuing the thorium, the thermal breeder, the thorium molten salt reactor. And unfortunately, Dr. Weinberg made a mistake in a congressional testimony in the early 70s, and he... He was telling Congress that these pressurized water reactors were not as safe as his molten salt reactor, not as good, not as sustainable. And one of the congressmen turned to him and said, well, if you feel that way, you ought to just leave the industry. And he, you know, he left that meeting quite mad, and <laughs> they basically pressured him into resigning. He was forced out. He was fired. Wow. And after a 25-year stint, they, they not only fired him, they canceled his program, the molten salt breeder reactor program, excuse me, the molten salt reactor program. They told everyone to shut up or they'll get fired too. They transferred everybody into different programs and Oak Ridge abandoned its vision and has been a little lost ever since. <laughs> <laughs> so initially it sounds like the pressurized water reactor had success because it had a champion that was excellent at execution and was it able to... It had overlap with the uranium plutonium. And it had overlap with the weapons complex that necessitated generation of a material that doesn't occur naturally and is was necessary for the larger nuclear bombs that were we were, we were blowing up the time those politics are long gone you know unfortunately yeah. we treat plutonium like it's horrible evil terrible stuff but we paid a big price to make it and it's valuable. Yeah. but you know today we're trying to get rid of it so a thorium reactor that doesn't make plutonium looks pretty good by today's standards nice Okay. I mean, you, you listed some of the, the merits of the reactor, um, but can you give us an overview kind of, of Flybe, its background, when, when Flybe got started, um, where you guys are at now? Flybe was founded in 2011. I believe it was the world's first commercial effort to do molten salt reactors. 
Now, TerraPower stepped into the space later, but they weren't at the time doing molten salt reactors. Yeah. Uh, so the founder was Kirk Sorensen. He'd been at NASA uh, here in Huntsville working on uh, or discussing, I guess, uh, lunar power with one of his colleagues. And his colleague, as they discussed, that his colleague used to work at Oak Ridge National Lab and tells him, you know, my boss, oh, all the old timers at Oak Ridge say the thorium molten salt reactor is the way people ought to do power. And so that that initiated a, a you know, now 20 something year quest to uncover why they didn't do the thorium molten salt reactor and is it really as good as it sounds. And, you know, he believes it is. I believe it is. Alvin Weinberg to his death believes it is. Glenn Seaborg, who, you know, he was even involved in canceling it when he was chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission, regretted that decision. So turns out it is a good technology. It's a very promising technology. It's the mistake was not doing it, you know, when we turned away from the Cold War politics, I suppose. Um, okay. So Flybe Energy is old. It had a rough start. The initial investment didn't, you know, really come in. But since about 2016, it's really just grown both in, you know, personnel. We're still small, don't get me wrong. We're small, but in influence and in following. We, in fact, there was a bill just submitted in the Senate today, and I believe there's a House companion that's the Thorium Energy Security Act that's meant to preserve the nation's inventory of uranium-233, the fissile that's required to start our reactors. Reactors like our lifter, and it's pretty exciting time for for us. We're really, you know, we're on the upswing right now, and it's fun to talk to you. And hope folks in your audience are listening. If they're interested in supporting us or, or joining us, they can definitely reach out or contact their Congress people. Awesome. Um, so, what what all are you guys trying to accomplish? So, is it just creating the reactor or implementing it into a power plant? I mean, ultimately, like large scale. Deployment of your technology, I imagine, is the vision. But help, help me out with, I guess, some of the specifics and where you guys are in the process. Business details are always sensitive, but I, I guess I could sure. say, you know, in the near term, we'd like to design, build, and and probably operate a micro reactor. Uh, we think we can do that this decade, as long as we can manage the risk and 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 I guess manage have the, the fi- financial wherewithal to be able to do it, right? And honestly, <laughs> that's really the that's the trick. Uh, we have partners that can do this. It's really just managing the risk so that they will do it. And that often involves political actions. It's really, you know, like, nuclear, is, it was it was almost a socialist enterprise. It was a government-controlled enterprise early on from the beginning. And it's now just very government-influenced. So it's very regulated. We have a unique pathway through the regulatory environment that's quite appealing uh, with isotope production, medical isotopes. So we, we think we can streamline that process. So that de-risks our investors quite a bit. The micro reactor approach, you have a small inventory of radionuclides. So even your accident scenarios, which are already small with a molten salt reactor and its chemical retention and its low pressures, it's almost non-existent with a, with a, just a physically small reactor. So it's, you know, we, we have a good path forward. Um, but yeah, we'd like to deploy micro reactors in the near term and midterm. There's a lot of opportunity, a lot of applications. And maybe the distinguishing feature I can say is that we are trying, we're not just trying to do electricity. You know, most folks talk about climate change and that's how you get government funding. Uh, for us, there's a business case to be made uh, that's a lot easier to make outside of electricity. Electricity is a very competitive market. 
natural gas is killing. And you can't you can't sell to everyone, right? I mean, you got to yeah. yeah. The, the only buyer is the utility often, right? You, and they've got a complicated process. It's a multi-year. Well, well and the value, just the value of the commodity is so low. Electricity is yeah. worth so little because it's so competitive. Because there's so many players, there's so many ways of making electricity. Everyone wants clean energy, but nobody needs it. You need to find a market where people need you. And they'll pay a high dollar for you. So you get some of the some folks are, are smart. They're chasing micro reactor, you know, electricity production applications in markets where electricity prices are high in Alaska, Canada, you know, mining, remote mining operations. But those are pretty hard to deploy in. You know, we fortunately identified a few other markets that seem to be more appealing. And one that's public would be these medical isotopes. We've got a good path forward uh, on that. And there's other yeah. isotopes and there's other applications. So. Near-term micro-reactors, long-term, yeah, big reactors for big power generation. The Oak Ridge designs for a molten salt breeder reactor were small modular reactors, a four-pack, uh, each of which was about 250 megawatt electric to make a, a gigawatt-scale plant, and that's, that's something we could go do with this design. Gotcha. So if I heard that correctly, you guys aren't necessarily chasing electricity generation immediately does that mean you don't have a power conversion component to to your system you can it, it's just it's a smaller revenue portion of the plant um, sure so electricity is a secondary product in in a lot of our applications some applications are non-electricity completely but you know no. it's just the secondary product that's not worth very much okay how soon are you guys expecting to be commercial technology <laughs> back to the risk management and time timeline's hard it's yeah. It's funding dependent. You know, funding tells you how fast you can go. It's risk management if you have an obstacle that holds you up for a year or so, you know, two years, three years. You see that a lot in nuclear. So every nuclear project is over budget and behind schedule, and it's really, you know, it's really hard. And, and most folks chasing microreactors are in the same boat. It's just it's not an easy thing to deploy. But in my mind, the technology readiness level is there. I mean, they did so much for 25 years at Oak Ridge. It's yeah. not, it's, you know, the timeline is not constrained by the technology. It's really just personnel and political obstacles and then just the will to go do it, you know, from investors and from, uh, well, really just investors in our team. I mean, there's not, there's not really any major obstacles that I see, uh, to the timeline. So a five year deployment is doable. I, I wow. That's awesome. Yeah, that was my next question is what are some of the biggest hurdles? But it sounds like if, if you guys are confident in the technology, then awesome. There's a lot to do. Now, we, Oak Ridge had done a lot, and we're trying to improve upon their work. You know, there's modern chemical processing that can be done. There's a modern power conversion system, supercritical CO2. We'll try to do that. That enables, that facilitates tritium capture, which is one of the downsides of our reactor. So there's, there's work to be done, but it's, it's things that can be done with university partners, uh, maybe with national lab partners, but that's pretty expensive and takes longer, so we don't usually do that, but we will when we have to. You know, can, we like, can we can we double click on that real quick? The tritium capture. I'm I guess I'm unfamiliar with that. Yeah, tritium. And why that's actually <laughs> well, it's a problem. It's also a product, so it's tritium's quite valuable. But what you have, most nuclear reactors, and tr tritium is just the three three uh, or atomic mass of three yeah, of hydrogen. Energy. Hydrogen with two neutrons. Then deuterium is what you use to make heavy water and go do fusion. And tritium is also a fusion uh, material, but it's rare. So it's got about a 12-year half-life, so you can't really stockpile it. They use it in nuclear weapons. They use it in exit signs. It's, you know, it's just, it's a value. Is it 
can't it's radioactive it. right i mean if it has 12 year half-life it's relatively yeah but it's a low energy beta emitter so it's you know your yeah. skin will stop it you know you just don't you don't want to drink it or eat it so it, say in Fukush- fukushima there was a lot of tritiated water that leaked but it was shielded by the water around it, it you know it's just it's a wine yeah. it really wasn't as dangerous no one died right i mean just no yeah. one died. yes sort of stuff so tritium's low risk but it is radioactive. It is made through either fission, or in our case, we make it when lithium absorbs a neutron and will spit out a, a tritium particle. But what's unique in our reactor is as it, the tritium is such a small nucleus, it'll diffuse through hot metal pretty easily. So it'll go through heat exchangers, and it'll contaminate your, contaminate your coolant salt. It'll go through another heat exchanger. It'll contaminate the working fluid of your power conversion system. If that power conversion system is steam, you'll have tritiated water. You'll have contaminated a lot of a large volume of water, just like at Fukushima. By using supercritical CO2, not only can you get smaller turbo machinery and higher efficiencies theoretically, but you have a hydrogen-free working fluid. And by having, when the tritium comes into that carbon dioxide, there are techniques to separate to capture the tritium, and you can have a pure tritium product coming out of the reactor, coming out of the power conversion system. I guess I should say. So it's. It's just an efficient way of capturing tritium that would otherwise be a big problem. Our, so a micro-reactor lifter would normally generate, you know, the equivalent of a gigawatt-scale light water reactor's tritium, but we can capture it much more efficiently. Gotcha. Okay. Um, I'm going to shift gears on you just a little bit and um, bring up a recent uh, request for information that Idaho National Labs released a report or an ask for information about net zero um, and how INL wants to be net zero by 2031. Um, they're requesting information for people to submit a response about their technology. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but uh, a lot of the questions that they asked were really questions that I want to know about, like every single micro reactor that exists <laughs> or any, any reactor in general. I'll skim through a couple of them real quick. So provide a brief description of your nuclear reactor system, clean reactor type, operating temperature, power conversion systems. If the system is modular, provide capabilities per module. Uh, what capacity could you provide for electrical and thermal capacity? Describe ramping capability up or down. Describe load falling capabilities. What's the overall footprint? What's the anticipated peak demand in megawatts? Anticipated peak demand range in megawatts, thermal and electric. Um, your experience with interfacing with utilities, experience with regulatory agencies, and describe proposed authorization or license DOE versus NRC. Uh, those were the technology questions. Yeah, yeah. Well, those are all good questions. Sorry, I read them pretty fast. <laughs> we're designing a similarly sized reactor to probably what they would be looking for. These micro reactors are good for small cities or bases or, or national labs or things like that. But the problem. Well, I guess that we run into so the the net zero, the decarbonization. Now, I, I you know I was raised really concerned about climate change. Still am. It's a problem, and I'm worried about it. But it's not a business plan, and it doesn't pay. Yeah. The, doesn't electricity just doesn't pay the bills. So if you're going into Idaho Falls, which already has very low electricity prices, and you're trying to actually build, you know, fund the capital costs, the operating costs, the licensing costs, the design costs, all of that under the expected revenue from a first-of-a-kind reactor that may only operate, you know, five years, 10 years, maybe 20 years, you know, you don't get enough revenue out of that sort of a project to justify doing it. It's just, sure. you know, these net present value calculations don't normally work in electricity applications. So, you know, for us, it's not that we wouldn't go do something like that. It's just we have other sites we've identified and projects that we're pursuing that are not at INL. Um, 
but they do have capabilities for technology development that we're interested in. So, you know, we're working, <laughs> we'd like to work with INL even more on with some of their, uh, the molten salt, uh, yeah. capabilities, but not probably not going to deploy a reactor there unless you know, maybe I need to relook at this net zero. Maybe there's funding I, I should be chasing. <laughs> so, so it's kind of hard with the, uh, we, you, you put in a lot of, time and effort to chase funding and then you get denied <laughs> because yeah, there's so right. many reactors and so many people you know, we're yeah. pretty small competitors so it's hard for us to compete with those well, this this was just their just request for information i don't think it was even like a promise for funding it was just they were asking people seeing how many people would uh um respond to it you know so i'll have to look and that, like like one of the questions was what's the rough order of magnitude of the cost of the system or target cost of energy and they give the range of like minus 30% to plus 50% range, rough order of magnitude. So it sounds like they just want to know like how many zeros behind uh, your capital cost are there? And is your cost of electricity on the like 3,000 per megawatt hour or 10,000 per megawatt hour range? And that's another, I said, we don't do the levelized cost of electricity calculations. Right. We're just chasing. So it's, you know, we, we kind of done them for certain solicitations kind of like that, but, uh, no, I mean, in more detail, I could say we're, we're chasing in the, you know, reactor deployment in the 1 to 30 megawatt electric range. It would use materials that have been demonstrated. It's a low-pressure system. You'd use Hastelloyen. You'd use graphite. You'd use fly-based salts. Um, you know, things we've already discussed. The, the safety features are very good. You wouldn't have to engineer your safety features because they're inherent. Um so capital costs would be much lower than traditional reactors. Operating costs, like I said, that with the dynamic stability that's been demonstrated in a physical reactor, you get much lower operating costs or at least much lower risk in operation. Yeah. Um, yeah. Something, sorry, so something that I'm curious about is the metallurgy um, that you guys would be using, and that's a pushback that I've heard often from molten salt reactors is, and some of the materials that are necessary to not be corroded by some of these salts either don't exist or are very complicated or very expensive. How are you guys approaching that problem? Is that a problem, number one? And how, how do you guys? Ironically, for our reactor, that's a problem that was solved in the 70s. I, so corrosion. So it's done. We're done. TRLs at 10, right? Readiness level. We're good to go. No, definitely not 10, you know, but. They did demonstrate corrosion control. So, so in the molten salt reactor experiment, uh, I, I guess I should maybe clarify a few. So our, our salts have less uranium. Uranium tends to exacerbate, uh, corrosion. So we have very little by using thorium and uranium 233 instead of low enriched uranium. You have very little uranium, but it's very little damage. <clears throat> With the graphite and the has and the salts, there's almost no interaction. There's almost no corrosion. They're very compatible. They de- this is what the MSRV was meant to do, was to demonstrate the chemical compatibility of the materials. Now, on the Hastelloyen, the, the nickel alloy that they use, that they developed for, you know, molten salt reactors and fluoride-based molten salt reactors, they could control the corrosion <clears throat> by controlling the redox level. So they could add beryllium to the, to the salt and have limit, very, you know, and limit and almost eliminate the corrosion effect. They did have issues with the new, you know, there was, I guess, different issues. So there was tellurium, a fission product, tellurium would get into the Hastelloyen, would get in the grain boundaries, would cause cracking. In our system, we have, unlike the molten salt reactor experiment, we have 
online and continuous fission product removal. So you'll get the tellurium out or at least lower the levels to the point that should be fairly small. In the MSRE, they had another issue that was identified after they shut down. They, when the neutrons fission near the Hastelloy end, near the vessel wall, a neutron will get absorbed by the nickel, and the nickel, uh, it'll emit a helium nucleus, an alpha particle. And that, in, that you know, that makes the Hastelloy end more brittle over time. So that was an issue. You know, their reactor ran fine for five years, but longer than that, they were concerned about. In our situation with a lithium fluoride thorium reactor, it's a two-fluid molten salt reactor, so the fuel salt is only next to graphite, and then there's an annulus around that surrounds a shield around the fuel where the fission is occurring that captures all of the salt. The thorium will capture all of the neutrons coming out before the vessel wall even gets hit by neutrons, so there will be no neutron-induced uh, or excuse me, helium-induced embrittlement of the Hastelian. So we so we address you know the corrosion, the embrittlement, the tellurium cracking, all of those things in our design. Those were identified and addressed 50 years ago. But most molten salt reactors, that if they don't use those same materials, they have to start over. They have to go figure out all of that stuff again. So it's a low. It is an issue for many molten salt reactors. We we have two other reactor concepts, two other molten salt reactor concepts, and the corrosion is a is something we do need to figure out and other issues, but not with Lifter. With Lifter, it's a near-term deployable tech. Okay, and then Lifter. I don't think we've touched on that yet. This is this is your guys' actual reactor technology. That yes. is is Lifter an acronym for anything? Yeah, it's the lithium fluoride thorium reactor. There you go. Very, very straightforward. <laughs> yeah, thorium fueled reactor. You just need a startup inventory of uranium 233, and you can do, you know, Hastelloyen, uh, flive salts, uh, graphite extruded moderator. So you can do all the stuff they demonstrated in the molten salt reactor experiment in a two fluid configuration. Low pressure, chemical retention, all very good. Chemical processing, longevity is achievable. And in a micro reactor deployment, it's the same rough size is what they'd already demonstrated. So we're not jumping from, you know, the eight megawatt thermal of the molten salt reactor experiment. We're not jumping to gigawatt scale reactors anytime soon. Gotcha. And then the micro reactor scale, people throw this around and it's often a power size or physical size. I mean, are you guys envisioning this to be transportable like in a shipping container or it would be a little bit bigger, like a small chemical plant, small building? No, it's just, yeah, yeah. For us, it's just, Ideally, it's a nondescript industrial building for terrestrial applications. Now, you could put these on ships. They could go push ships across the ocean, but that's yeah. not the first deployment. <laughs> you know, no one knows how to right. do that. That's, a, that's down the line a little bit. But gotcha. they do have to decarbonize, too, and they don't get to use fossil fuels or, I mean, unless they're going to go back to wind sailing across the ocean or something. There's uh, just no renewables. There's no nothing they can do. I, I think there's a big play for leveraging the heat and electricity in the, these advanced reactors or even current reactors to g generate synthetic fuels. Um, have you guys thought about, or well, I'll ask a question a different way. What's the kind of top end of your guys' heat production? And do you think that there's opportunity there for other chemical processes or industrial processes? So for our reactor, we're trying to keep it uh, at 650 Celsius as the reactor outlet temperature. Um, when you have, when you go above about 700 Celsius, you'll have uh, chromium migration in the Hasselhoi, and it'll diffuse to the surface and then get pulled out by the fluoride salts. So you'll have a, a bad effect uh, if you go to too high a temperature. 
there are more advanced versions of Hastelloy and there are better nickel alloys that could be used, but they've never been used in a reactor. So in a prototype reactor, our first reactor we deploy will likely have a characterization program to uh, analyze these other potential materials that can go to higher temperatures. The salts themselves don't vaporize until like 1400 Celsius, so you could go to very high temperatures. And the graphite is totally fine at those temperatures as well. So if you can get a structural material that can go to higher than 700 Celsius, you can go up really high and do some pretty impressive chemical, or, you know, there's a lot of applications for high temperature uh, reactors. Gotcha. 650 is already good enough for most most of those high temperature applications, but there are others. Yeah, yeah. The hotter, the better. And just for reference, the current pressurized water reactors are like 375, right? 400. And they have to pressurize to do that. That's the problem yeah. with water. You got to pressurize yeah. those. Got to have a thick steel casing on all of the materials. Yeah, yeah. to hold in the pressure. In case yeah. it flashes, it makes the capital cost ridiculous. You know, huge yeah. forging. I mean, it's just. Very difficult to do, and you don't have any of that. It's just hydrostatic pressures in a molten salt reactor. You know, very low. So this this two salt system, I, I mean, are they physically separated? It sounds like by a, a vessel or piping. Um, by the piping. Do they interact? Okay, and in in one set of pipings, a graphite coated or made out of graphite predominantly piping. Yep. So so during the men, or excuse me, during Bokeridge's molten salt work, they began designing these molten salt breeder reactors, and they had one fluid versions and they had two fluid versions, and we we selected for our lifter the basis of our design as a two fluid design, and and uh, that was the one with the most efficient fuel cycle. It was the most scalable for global energy production if you really wanted to go that route. Um, gotcha. But that makes the core a little bit more difficult because you are trying to. You have these graphite to metal transitions that, you know, are brazed or compressed. And, you know, so it's a little difficult to keep the salts separate, but they're not, it's not a safety issue if they do leak into each other. It's more of an economical thing. So the fluoride salts are compatible. Yeah, you're, just, you're destroying your industrial material, but once it, if it's contaminated, then you just take it out, throw it away, remake it, right? Uh, you could. you just clean it. You wouldn't even make it. You just have to there shut it clean it specially and then keep, you know, fix the, fix the uh, issue in the reactor. And fortunately, without, without the high pressures and the big components, these reactors are pretty, I mean, uh, you know, some folks will call them garbage cans, but even the big ones, the 250 megawatt electric design they've done, they're only like 14 feet tall, you know, 13 feet wide. And you can go to higher power densities where they're more like trash cans and just little tiny things. So, you know, we're not quite going to do it that small, the, you know, do a little safer, a little easier with the lower power density, but you know, not not big hard things to replace. Relatively small components. Cool. Um, Kurt, I think we've answered a, a lot of the questions that I had scripted for you. And I, I'd ask where where do you think you guys fit in with the regulatory regime in the U.S. and the NRC? And you know, I know the NRC coming out with some new rules. Um, has that been easy for you guys to navigate? You mentioned potentially kind of a different regulatory pathway you guys are pursuing. How, how do you guys approach that problem? Well, regulation, I mean, as an industry guy, it's always you know easy to dream of deregulation. It'd be nice to just ask, how do I make my reactor safer instead of am I complying with all of these you know, light water reactor focused regulations. Let's, yeah, I feel like the regulation should be like one sentence yeah. that's like, do no harm to yourself or other people. And if you do, we will punish you. That, and that's then, what the NRC wants, right? Protect people yeah. and the environment. And that's what we want to do as well. So it's, you know, we have the same motivations. You're not going to, 
make a lot of money by building an unsafe reactor that has problems, accidents, and no one will buy it, right? But, you know, to the NRC's credit, they've kept the industry very safe for a long time. Like to have that same sort of safety culture in the future lifter industry if we, if we were able to deploy that. So we, you know, the NRC has made tremendous progress on advanced reactors. We've adopted more of a drafting approach for some of the bigger DOE funded, you know, advanced reactor companies that are, that are, that have, you know, the funding to go and engage with the regulator. We, we try to not pay the $280 an hour, you know, to the NRC with those interactions. So we, so we draft the big guys. We try to pay attention to what you know is mod, what the modernization work is, and we try to identify what exemptions we may have to chase, and try to limit the number of exemption requests we'll have to make. We try to make our regulatory engagement plan. We you know we answer email questions from them to get them up to speed with our materials and our technologies. We we have quite a bit of engagement, but we're still in the pre-application phase. And my real hope with the NRC is that in the coming Maybe not this decade, but in the coming decades, they become capable of licensing hundreds of reactors a year and, and a thousand, thousands of reactor industry. We've just never been able to scale up our current industry to something that's so large. You know, yeah. so they, they'd have to do it differently than they do today in order to accommodate that sort of an environment. Thousands of micro reactors is a very different situation than what they're doing now. Absolutely. Okay. Well, Kurt, what's the what's one thing about the energy industry that uh, scares you or keeps you up at night? Going back to the beginning of the conversation is, you know, it's probably energy poverty. I, you know, I'm in Mozambique, you know, in my formative years, and I'm seeing a country that, you know, the Portuguese had colonized for a couple hundred years, and they built pretty impressive cities, big buildings, and organized roads and things. In the 70s, the Portuguese got kicked out. And there was a civil war, 16-year civil war, and they kind of left, you know, as the communists on one side, right, and the American backed side on the other. And well, the war left them in a in a post-apocalyptic living situation, you know, and they're living in these stick and mud, uh, sprawling villages that surround the the formerly great civilization, you know, the big city with the skylines and things. They Olympic-sized swimming pools and marble. Hotels, you know, those are now squatter camps with, you know, the marble atriums filled with trash all the way to the top. It was really depressing in a way. Uh, people were great, but you just felt bad because their life expectancy was like 38, you know, average age. Yeah. It was just a pretty rough situation. And I come back to the United States, and the first one of the first things I started hearing about was California's rolling brownouts. You know, and, and, and I see pictures and videos of Skid Row, and there's tent, tent cities with a beautiful, you know, skylines, big buildings in the background. And I'm starting to think, oh, no, we're heading in the same direction. You know, it's like a decaying civilization. Yeah. Right? Oh, I didn't want that. I did not it's want like that. It's like legit Atlas Shrugged, right? <laughs> yeah. So I, so I got nervous about that. And, then, you know, so anyway, energy just became very important to me. And this is what sort of scared me away from a lot of the climate change talk is what I used to love renewables, really thought solar, rooftop solar was going to be something special. But, you know, the energy return on energy invested really does matter. And it's renewables don't cut it. If you're going to replace fossil fuels, the things that gave us our civilization, you have to do it with nuclear and you have to do it with a scalable and sustainable form of nuclear where there's waste management, proper waste management, inherent safety, low costs. So that's, you know, that's the future as I see it. 
get away from energy poverty by adopting the right kind of nuclear. But if you're not going to adopt the right kind of nuclear, stick with fossil fuels. Man, stick with natural gas. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What's uh, what, what advice do you have for young professionals in the energy industry? Well, you know, get, get involved. Get get. Don't be afraid to take chance. You know, risk to reach out to your Congress people. Go attend new workshops. Go get on the internet and learn about weird things like thorium and molten salt reactors and more innovative technologies than what you're working on right now. You know, I, a lot of engineers are kind of reserved, kind of conservative in our in our approach. You know, it's a low risk field, right? You get paid pretty well to do a a job that you can do and be smart about and you know good job security and good pays and easy family friendly approach but there's a whole big world to go take over you know i mean it's 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 the young people's world to take and energy is the basis for our civilization so you know don't be afraid to get out there i i i've enjoyed not being just you know little sixth of eight kids from you know no, nowhere northern utah it's been fun to go meet with Congress people, to go meet with energy secretaries, to meet with the, you know, very wealthy investors and potential investors and 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 Kool-Aid man through the wall. And I encourage all young people to go do the same thing. Nice. Kurt, leave us, uh, leave us on a positive note. Where do you see this all going in five, ten years? Well, the next five, ten years, I think you're going to see advanced reactors start coming online beyond that. I think by the end of the century, we're going to finally have made the transition. I think with the second nuclear era that Alvin Weinberg envisioned isn't just a pipe dream. It's not just a, an optimistic, you know, prophetic sort of thing. It's a practical reality. It doesn't have to be driven just by government spending on climate change. There are business opportunities for advanced nuclear technologies or advanced energy technologies of any kind. And those that want to take that opportunity, take those chances, can really transform the world and leave a legacy to their kids or grandkids. It's something to be proud of. You know, just like our predecessors in nuclear were proud to have worked on the very first nuclear submarine, the very first, you know, very first nuclear reactor. We can do the same thing right now. It's a fun time to be in the industry. Man, preach, brother. That's, uh, well, <laughs> couldn't end on a better note than that. Thank Kurt Harris, thanks so much for your time. And, uh, yeah, we really appreciate it. Thank you.